0: Hey everybody, thanks for listening to the Locals Podcast. I'm your host, Weston Moody. On today's show, I was fortunate enough to talk with Rolf Potts. Rolf is a travel writer, adventurer, teacher, and podcaster. A lot of you may know him from podcasts with Tim Ferriss and Ari Shafir. Or you may know him, like I do, from his first book, Vagabonding. Vagabonding was an inspiration for my travels, so I feel very fortunate to have been able to do this interview with Rolf. Today, we talk about his new book, Souvenir, his podcast, Deviate, and Travel. I hope you enjoy the show. Uh, Ralph, thanks for being on the podcast. I appreciate you taking the time. Um, I I do want to tell you my story of Vagabonding because I I know that you've heard him, and you said you like to hear him. So I want to tell you that back in 2005, uh, 2004 maybe, Um, I was at the Salina Public Library and I I remember hearing about a speaking arrangement that you maybe did around that time and there was a new book about travel and I was in college at that moment in time as a freshman and trying to decide on what I wanted to do and it's like man what do I what should I do and I really wanted to get out and study abroad and heard about it a little bit and just happened to go into the Salina, Salina Public Library and saw that your book was, was being released there. And so I checked it out, read it in a night. The next day I go back to college and I booked a ticket to Ecuador and I've been traveling ever since. So I want to thank you personally for for kind of inspiring me to to get out and, and uh, get out of my comfort zone and and uh, start traveling.
1: Awesome. Well, that's very decisive of going immediately to Ecuador. Were you at Westland or K-State or where were you going to school?
0: No, I was going to Fort Hayes State.
1: Okay, Fort Hayes. Sure. Yeah. You know, I think I think the the copy of Vagabonding has long since been stolen from the Salina Public Library. Um, <laughs> I don't think it's there anymore.
0: Uh, I, I I didn't steal it. <laughs>
1: right. I don't think it, right. <laughs> I no, like for the last ten years, I've 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 never uh, I looked for it once, and it's not there. Marco Polo didn't go there. Is is in the library, but not Vagabonding. So somebody disappeared so, so from the library.
0: Yeah, it just, it really inspired me. What kind of inspired you do to uh, write Vagabonding?
1: Well, I was I was in the middle, I was probably nearing year two of the journey, um, a journey through Asia and Eastern Europe and, and the Middle East, and I was writing a column for Salon.com called Vagabonding, um, just every two weeks, I would I would uh, write a travel essay, tell a travel story. Um, and I was actually asked to write Vagabonding, an editor at Random House who just so happened to have had the same social studies teacher as me at Wichita North. I mean, strange, one of the strangest literary connections in the world, that Vagabonding was actually sparked by the fact that two Wichita North grads were, one was in Asia and one was working at Random House. Um, I, had, I had, on my... When I was writing for Salon, and of course, sadly, Salon doesn't do any travel content anymore, um, I got two common questions from readers. And this is before social media, this is even before comment sections on websites. So people would email me and they would ask me, one, how did you become a travel writer? And so I started interviewing, I didn't really know the answer to that question, I only knew my own journey. And so I started interviewing travel writers every month, just a basic slate of questions. Uh, and I still do that. I, I'm in my 18th year of interviewing one travel writer a month, um, 12 months a year. The other question they asked me is how I was able to travel so long, um, you know, month after month after month on the road in Asia. And what I created was a, a manifesto, but I didn't want to call it a manifesto. So I called it a festo And I put it on my rolfpotts.com website. I was an early adopter for author websites. Uh, I got mine in 1998. And so this is 2000, I put up the the suggest festo. I think I did something that people had not done before, where, where a lot of long-term travel advice was very logistical. It was very, where do you find your tickets? How do you roll your socks? Um, whereas my travel advice was philosophical. It was it was a ten point list that really framed travel, not so much in the how, but in the why and the why now. And my former classmate, who I never knew at Wichita North, weirdly enough, it's a fairly big school. Um, she was one year ahead of me, she emailed me in the summer of ninety or of 2001 and said, do you think this can be a book? And I said, sure, it can be a book, you know, Random House person. And it's interesting is that um, it's. I think if she hadn't have nudged me, I may not have expanded that travel advice. Uh, and then I got a contract from Random House. I ended up spending eight months writing the book. And, of course, when you do a deep dive, you end up in that writing process, you know, finding so much more to say. And so it was the timing was perfect for vagabonding because I was I was I'd been traveling for two years. I was still very grateful and excited to be to be on the road. Um, And I've said before I I know a lot more 15 years later. I'm a more I have more erudition and, and scholarship when it comes to travel. But it was perfectly timed as far as I could still I still very much identified with that sort of pre travel Kansas version of myself. We sort of didn't believe travel was possible. So there's some extent to which that vagabonding is sort of a letter to my 17 year old self. I mean, it's not literally that, but I could, I could very much see my 17 year old self reading that and being relieved and, and, and excited by this advice that mixes, you know, practical information with, uh, more philosophical information and sort of a call to action uh, to not put off travel until it's too late. And so, yeah, it's 15 years later. And, and um, I've heard hundreds, if not thousands, of versions of the story that you've told me, you know, which is great, because that means that that letter to my 17-year-old self sort of had a universality, and that um, other people have responded to it. So it's been great. That book has become a part of my life, and I'm promoting a new book this month, uh, but the, but every interview goes back to vagabonding, and that's great. Um, I don't ever get tired of talking about it, and it's, it's sort of great to have written a book that has moved and inspired people, so um, all these years later, I, I still am excited to talk about it.
0: Yeah, kind of, I don't know if this is how you planned it out, I'm sure it's not, but it's kind of like what you said with vagabonding being the beginning, like some people just need that nudge, you know, I needed that nudge, you know, I take students abroad right now and actually, we're leaving tomorrow morning at 6.30, I'm taking a group of students to Costa Rica, and we're nice. gonna, they're going to do a homestay, no Wi-Fi. It's gonna be uh, an experience for them and and I've done this for 11 years and uh, you know kids always end up traveling more and more and more and, and so that's my goal and, and and with the podcast is to uh, kind of alert people about hey there's a bigger world out there um, but you know reading your books you know from vagabonding now to your new one souvenir, I think you're diving deeper into what travel is now that you've actually taken those steps to get on the get on the plane and, and and travel now it's what are you getting out of it and and what are some things that can help you le- lead a better life if I'm am I am I right or am I wrong or am I the oh, yeah. right
1: yeah i think it's all connected and like i sort of suggested that writing uh, vagabonding was a journey in and of itself like i sort of discovered things to say that i didn't realize that i had to say you know um, taking a deep dive into souvenirs really forced me to think about souvenirs in a way I hadn't thought about before, and it became an existential book, almost like vagabonding is an existential book. Vagabonding is much more applied, you know. It's about well, how do you want to spend your time in life? You're allotted so many years. Are you going to put off your dreams until you're 60? It's not a good idea. Whereas, um, I realized in researching souvenir that uh, that we really do more than we think and more than we realize use these objects to organize our memories and to sort of make sense of where we've been and, and what we've experienced and how we've changed in life, and it's one of those things where I hadn't even thought about it obviously I had pitched a book about it but I hadn't thought at the level until I started writing about it I didn't realize that uh, that souvenirs are something that actually are, are sort of their own language you know we have we have the the memories we discuss with other people we have the memories we keep inside of our heads but souvenirs are these strange associative objects one thing i point out in the book is that when neil armstrong the astronaut died uh the executive the executors of his estate found like a wrench and a waist tether and other just very small simple <laughs> objects from his moon landing and for all of the millions of words that have been written about the apollo is it 11 moon landing yeah um that these little objects had a story that was unique to him like he could he could pick up that wrench and it had an emotional association that no, you know, volume of of histories of this of the moon landing could evoke. And so I think we all have, uh, you know, equivalents of that moon wrench in our own lives. So yeah, yeah, it, it's interesting. You were going back to vagabonding. A lot of even interviews I've done recently, um, uh, and even the Ari Shafir interview, like Ari Shafir found vagabonding when he was already traveling. Uh, A guy I talked to yesterday in an interview found Vagabonding when he was already traveling. And so there are some people who read it before they ever leave and then other people who are traveling sort of with an unarticulated yen for travel. And then they read the book and it's like, okay, this makes sense and I have permission to keep doing it. Uh, I think that a lot of people go out on the road just because they feel they should. I know I did. And then they read vagabonding, and it and it reminds them why they did it, and it also reminds them that they don't have to stop; that they can just integrate travel in their lives in an ongoing way. And it sounds like you've done the same—that you're the you're the study abroad guy, and that you're challenged. Are you at Manhattan High, or yeah, where specifically? Manhattan High. Okay, yeah. So you have uh, you've integrated that into your professional life, and I've met other other teachers who are that way, and I think most schools that have teachers like you are grateful for that you know you have a perspective that is informed by your travel and you can pass it along so i in fact another interviewer asked me recently you know how can we how can we change the world how can we make everybody understand this and i think it's sort of a person to person thing you know ideas get passed along and a few kids go to costa rica and some won't respond to travel but others will and then they'll they'll pass along you know this this meme of an idea and then it just it deepens the lives of people who travel, but it also – it's sort of – it's good for a, for a country like America, which can be isolated sometimes, to have um, – for even your high school kids to bring back concrete uh, experiences from faraway places and make those places seem less abstract and less scary and, and uh, more a part of the ongoing uh, experience of the world.
0: Yeah, it really does. And Ed, well, reading your book Souvenir, just you know, I'm curious before I before I forget about Namibia because I you know you wrote about that in the very beginning, and uh, gosh, I started looking up pictures of it. And I'm like, man, I'd love to go there. Um, and I thought it was very unique, and I and I had a clear picture in my head of what it w- what it was like uh, through your writing um, of the African. Um, some of the Namibians selling the the polished rocks on the side of the road. Um, mm-hmm. I'm curious of that experience, and was that your inspiration um, to write souvenir, or what? What was your inspiration to to write it?
1: It it actually wasn't my inspiration. I was I was already into reporting the book. Um, in fact, I think I'd already taken the trip to the Las Vegas souvenir and gift show where the vendors more like sort of the wholesale transactions of the souvenir industry happen, uh, and so I was in Southern Africa for the winter. I was I was in Mozambique and Swaziland and South Africa, and then I went over to Namibia, and I know, actually interviewed. I was in Swakopmund, which is sort of a tourist beach town on the coast uh, in Namibia, and I talked to some souvenir vendors there. But then I was as I was driving up the Skeleton Coast, which is a very isolated part of the country. I noticed that these These tribespeople were selling polished rocks, and it it was just—I guess—before I wrote this book, I've been traveling the world for a long time. I had never spent half a day talking to souvenir vendors before, and it was really interesting. These were just really interesting people, and they were—and they um, were—I think sometimes we superimpose middle-class values and assumptions on people in other parts of the world. These people spoke great English because they interact with tourists so much. But they, were, they didn't apologize for being tribespeople who go back into the mountains and, and wear cowskins and, and herd animals in the winter. That, that's just – that's the life, the life they love. Selling souvenirs gives them a little bit of extra cash to send their kids to school. Uh, and so it was, it was really fun that after all these years of sort of a, treating souvenir vendors as a semi-nuisance – to actually spend time talking to souvenirs was really interesting. And that's how they made it in the book. They, they also ended up having, philosophically, they were similar to the souvenir vendors, or the souvenir shopkeepers I met in Paris, where they basically, in Paris, it's like, well, I, you know, I know my shop isn't close to the Eiffel Tower. This is a woman I was talking to on Rue Mouffetard in the 5th arrondissement. She's here, but tourists want to buy Eiffel Tower stuff. You know, what can I say? Um, that's true. <laughs> we're, 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 we're not that close to the Eiffel Tower, but... We sell tons of Eiffel Tower stuff because people buy tons of Eiffel Tower stuff. And and the Dahmer tribesmen were the same way, that they're like, you know, my father and my grandfather sold polished rocks to, to, you know, travelers and tourists. And so we're doing the same. This is how our kids get schools, uniforms and, and notebooks. And I thought that was really interesting that there's we forget sometimes also that we sort of have this oftentimes as first world travelers, as supposedly conscious politically conscious first world travels we worry that we're exploiting cultures but in a way um tourists buying polished rocks um help damara kids in the mountains get educations and maybe someday they'll go to to um windhoke and go to college and there'll be more damara kids in the legislature and the and the highest levels of government you know that 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 somehow every little bit counts you know and um the Tamara people you know selling to vendors it might look like this is a an undesirable job, but they are very philosophically confident in what they do as, as, as semi-precious stone vendors. And I, I just really enjoyed, they invited me to come and visit me in their village, which is six hours away, but I didn't have time to my shame. You know, I'm a slow traveler who likes to think he can be spontaneous, but in this particular situation, (laughs) I didn't have the time. So that's the Namibia uh, aspect of that travel And I'm happy to talk about Namibia more. I, I loved that. But, it, but actually, the, the impetus to the book was more more of a slow burn, that I've been keeping notes on souvenirs for years, uh, just as an aspect. I keep notes on often different aspects of travel that just sort of piqued my curiosity, different rituals of travel, like visiting museums or crossing borders or witnessing you know, graffiti in different parts of the world in different languages. So I just, as a writerly habit, I keep notes on a lot of this stuff. And one thing was souvenirs. And when I learned about Bloomsbury's object lesson series, of short books about objects from our everyday lives, it just felt like this was a pretext to write at length in a meditative way about souvenirs, which is something... That I sort of kept coming back to in my own thoughts as I traveled, and so this gave me a pretext for it. So, it's a pretty simple book. It's it's like a it's like 120 pages long. It's not a, a long book. It's a book you can fit in your pocket, but it's like this little masterclass in in uh, that mixes memoir and and history and anthropology and psychology uh, to examine you know these objects that structure our lives. Um, so yeah, it, it, it like wasn't something I did for careerist reasons. I don't plan to make, I don't expect to make a lot of money off of it, but it's something that I really enjoyed doing. And it, it it allowed me some interesting experiences in other places. Like there's Namibia is one example. The trade show in Las Vegas was another. In Paris, I actually walked down every single street in the 5th Arrondissement, which is where I've been, for more than 10 years, I've been living in that part of Paris when I teach my class at the American Academy. But And I thought I knew that neighborhood well, but in the course of, Walking down every single street in that district and, and penciling and marking off those streets on a map until I had covered the whole map in pencil, I realized that like 20% of that arrondissement I'd never visited before. I found jazz clubs and bookstores and boulangeries in places that maybe were 600 meters as the crow flies from where I lived, but somehow, somehow I'd never wandered in that corner of the city. Uh, so it's funny how even, even the quest to wrap my mind around souvenirs led to some really interesting travel experiences.
0: What, what's your, I'm curious of what your most cherished souvenir
1: is. Well, one thing I touch on in the book is that it sort of changes, you know, that um, the little clamshell I got from Lake Michigan when I was seven, which I sort of held on to in the hope that I might one day see an ocean— Became less cherished when I was used to seeing oceans. When I had camped on the beach many times in Oregon and gone through California, and so to be honest, I don't really know if I have one. Um, I've always uh, I have a little Kansas City royal shrine uh, in my house, shrine for lack of a better word. It's funny how when I did Google news searches for souvenir oftentimes souvenir is the metaphor people use to describe a baseball that lands in the stands. It's not really a travel souvenir. It's not what I was exploring. Um, But some of my favorite um, uh, objects are like Kansas City Royals ephemera from the seasons when they went to the World Series. And so it's funny how that's an emotional association that goes back to childhood, isn't even travel related, isn't really tied into my brand. I, I think I've been traveling so broadly for so many years that sort of the emotional power of the objects I've found is spread out among many objects. Like, I, I have you finished the book? Have you read it front to back?
0: No, I haven't. I've, I've read chapter one and, and I've got I've actually kind of dabbled a little bit. I skipped ahead and kind of looked at specific souvenirs that maybe connected to me. Uh, the, okay. the masks really did because I have I mean, I, when I was a kid, I just was. I just love masks. It didn't matter if it, I mean, just the colors and the shapes. And so I bought a bunch of masks and that really connected to me.
1: Yeah, well, actually, some of the academic researchers who studied souvenirs have noticed that people are drawn to masks so consistently that oftentimes cultures who don't have mask rituals will make masks just to sell to tourists, right? (laughs) So, you know, know, Africa is a huge continent. But almost everywhere you go in the souvenir market, there will be masks. And oftentimes the masks are either uh, the cultural product of a tribe that may be thousands of miles away, or a, a, you know local cultures will just make masks. And they're artistically interesting, but have no cultural depth because tourists like to buy masks. And so that was an interesting thing I discovered in the process. The reason I ask you if you've read the book Front to Mat- Back is there. there's a riverboat propeller that I keep on my wall from this experience I had of driving a riverboat down the Mekong River in, in Laos um, for three weeks in 1999, just sort of this, this harebrained adventure on a, on a fairly dangerous river in a locally bought Laotian fishing boat. And... Of the many travel souvenirs that I have, that's sort of a special one because just that trip was an extraordinary one. You know, there's a lot of souvenirs that I may have bought in the market or I may have purchased from interesting people or found along the way in places that resonated with me. But that 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 harebrained adventure down this this great world river um, with probably not enough information. I don't know if I would do it again because it you know, I could have died on this giant river uh so that's one of my special ones now you know now that i think about it i think looking at that riverboat propeller reminds me that i was once this person who woke up with the sun on the shores of the mekong not knowing what was going to happen in the day ahead and then sold that boat um, to local people on the cambodian border because i couldn't go any further uh so it's interesting you know i actually in the course of researching the book i found I went through my possessions and I, I realized that I had more souvenirs than I was even aware of that I'd kept things and sort of forgotten about them for a while. I mean, I go for months without thinking about that riverboat propeller, but when I look at it and I think about the associations it calls forth. I mean, do you are there in your travels are there are there souvenirs that have stronger resonance than others?
0: Yeah, I mean, the masks that I bought, I mean, I can there's a story to every one of them. Uh the Buddha mask that I have was and most of them are experiences that I like, that I think about, that I've had with, with other people. Um, one example, um, I have a bunch of, bunch of things from Nicaragua, um, and that actually was another vagabonding um, inspired trip. Uh, one of my friends that had never traveled, he had never traveled uh, overseas before, and I was kind of telling him about my stories, and we we were teachers together, and he's like, yeah, I'd love to, I'd love to travel and go somewhere, and I'm like, hey, you should. And, uh, he kind of was like, eh, I don't know. I was like, well, let's, let's make a deal. Let's just, let's do it right now. And, and let's, uh, book our tickets tonight. And, uh, so some of the other interviews that you've done about talking about traveling with other people, um, and like the, the process of getting together and, and looking at maps and, and those types of experiences really, uh, were inspired by the vagabonding. And then going back to the souvenir, you know, uh, with the masks, you know, every place I've been, I've. I've, you know, I've, I've bought a mask and one that I really, really cherish, I think is, is the time that, uh, went to uh, Dia de los Muertos in Mexico Ah. and, uh, I have a mask and so it's in my classroom right now and, and every kid that sees it asks about it. And so that kind of gets me into my story about, uh, my time seeing that did that event, and it always, you know, whenever I see it, I, those pictures pop up in my head. So that's probably the one that I cherish the most just, just because of the experience that I had.
1: Is it sort of a skull mask?
0: Yeah, yeah, it's a skull yeah. mask. And and I, really, the vendor that I bought it from, uh, <laughs> there's there was probably, you know, a couple hundred vendors that were selling the same exact mask. But that specific mask is, is one that I cherish.
1: Yeah, no, and I can see why your students re- would respond to it. I mean, there's something faintly badass about skulls in general. Um, I remember being a teenager and hearing about uh, Dia de los Muertos, and and of course this was pre-internet. I, there was very little. I didn't I didn't follow up. I couldn't just Google and find out what it was. Uh, but yeah, actually. There's, I didn't write about it a lot in the book, but there's an extent to which that those items, like who knows, that item in the classroom could plant a seed in the mind of a student and eventually lead them overseas. I mean, travel stories, travel objects, often are a language of themselves that speak to the world beyond. And that it, it used to be much a much stronger thing because we didn't have a chance to go online and see people's Instagram feed from the far side of the world. <laughs> but, I think, but I think there's still an extent to which that those objects, the souvenir objects you bring back, into a conversation that, that you have no idea where that's going to go. You know, there one of your students at age 23 might say, well, I'm finally going to go. And then, then they might meet someone who's riding a motorcycle from Alaska to Tierra del Fuego and, and that'll give them an idea to do something else. So, uh, it's really fun to see how, um, these ideas spread, you know, that there's, there can be sort of a, a meme like, uh, viral aspect to, And an unpredictable virality to um, what might lead people overseas. It's funny, too, that you you were talking about you sort of bullied your friend into going to Nicaragua. You know, what a great great, uh, service. Um, I remember my very first vagabonding trip. I didn't want to do it alone, so I did most of it with a friend uh, from college. And sometimes that's what it takes. Sometimes a lot of people won't go alone. They'll realize once they start traveling how easy it is to do alone. But um, having someone to go with that first time or even the first two or three times, uh, that's important, too. So you're, you're doing good work in bullying your friends into places like Nicaragua.
0: Yeah, I, we actually just uh, honestly did. Um, have you seen The Last King of Scotland?
1: Oh, that rings. A, is that a Forest Whitaker? Is he yes. in that movie? yes. You know, I haven't seen it, but I, I know of it.
0: It is. It's a fantastic. It, it's a in travel inspiration too. He actually like spun the globe, and put uh-huh. his finger on a random location. It was Uganda, and he went. Uh-huh. And we kind of did the same thing. We're like, let's just randomly choose some place, and it ended up being uh, Nicaragua. And our uh, my wife at the time and his girlfriend were very very um, <laughs> very worried about us because they you know everybody thinks the Nicaragua is this place that. You know the Contra and all this, you sure. know, guerrilla warfare and and war and all this, you know, civil war down in Central America. It's just, uh, you know, that's that's the mindset. And we, that's probably one of my favorite locations to go, is is uh-huh. Nicaragua. So that was uh, definitely inspired by multiple parties there, um, for sure. But you know, I, I wanted to, I wanted to talk to you too about like. How you balance out, you know, everything that you're doing? Because on your website, rolfpotts.com, you know, you label yourself as a travel writer, essayist, adventurer, and teacher. And I know that you said you you teach a summer class, and you're you're writing books, and you're traveling, and you're. Um, I, don't you write sc- uh, screen? Aren't you a screenwriter as well?
1: Yeah, I do a, a fair amount of of screenplay writing. Yeah.
0: So how do you? I mean, how do you balance those interests? I know that you have specific things that and that's my problem as, as a, as an educator and a coach and a traveler and, and, uh, is, is balancing out all those interests.
1: Yeah. I don't know if I have a, a, hard and pat answer to that because, um, I guess I do different things at different times. You know, this winter I was in Hawaii for seven weeks earlier this winter, I guess it's still winter. Um, and I spent a month just in Waikiki working in an apartment and then three weeks hiking around. And I, you know, in a sense, the three weeks hiking around, I wasn't getting any work done, but it was such an important part of my psychic life. And so I think there's this weird balance of writing and traveling and teaching and then public speaking. Yeah, it's a weird cycle. And, and I think that there's no, your life becomes inefficient, but in, for me at least, in a way that's sort of, uh, that also is rewarding. So I probably could have written more books by now. I probably could have written more articles. I could have, I could be a full-time professor. Um, I've taught at some fancy schools before. Um, but I'm sort of trying to balance those passions and ambitions with being focused on my favorite way of being in the world, which is having having freedom to to do travels that i find extraordinary so um yeah i don't think there's a a a silver bullet that makes this thing efficient and you know you mentioned screenplays those are a tough nut to crack i mean you can write a good screenplay but still you have to convince people to to throw 10 to 50 million dollars at it which is different than writing a book you have to get 200 people together to make a movie. So in a sense screenwriting is very risky because I can do it well and maybe nothing will ever come of it. And Hollywood is full of people who get paid for scripts that are never produced and have been, you know, working on a sideline and have done a lot of work in screenwriting and it hasn't panned out. And, you know, philosophically I have to accept the reality that that might be the case for me. Uh, Yeah. So, so I guess it's one of those things in a way I'm proud of at my age, uh, embracing things like that, embracing things like screenwriting, because it sort of puts me in the beginner's mind. I mean, I've been fooling around with screenplays for a long time, but I'm not an expert in that world. I, I teach screenwriting a little bit in, in my in my Paris class, but it allows me to sort of have that creative vulnerability in a field where I am not yet established as an expert. Um, and so that's a nice travel writing a counterbalance to travel writing too, because I. Uh, Comparatively, effortlessly, it's never easy, but with comparative ease, I can write travel things, um, even the souvenir book, um, whereas uh, uh, like screenplay-type undertakings um, allow me to, to explore new ground in a way that there's less certainty than writing another travel article. So it's been fun. We'll, we'll see how it shakes out. I don't have kids or anything, uh, so... I probably have more time than your average guy in his forties to do, to to, to sort of have multiple things going on at once.
0: Now your podcast—I want to get to that because you know, being an amateur podcaster, I'm always curious and and uh, wanting to learn from from people. And uh, I like your last podcast. I I think you did a nice job of that and the production of it. Um,
1: Well, that's the most produced podcast I've done so far. A lot of them are just interview podcasts, whereas. Just this particular guy. It's about a, a guy who was playing a basketball game in high school, and his high school was very small, and everybody on his team fouled out but him, and he basically kept the other team from scoring for the better part of three minutes. Um, but as a, as a storyteller, like um, like he just he didn't tell the story front to end. He wasn't a natural storyteller, so I had to chop that up. And credit to my producer Justin Glow. Um, we're both Radio Lab fans. Do you listen to the Radio Lab? I do, and it,
0: it reminded me of that the the sounds in the background, and yeah, I I really yeah. liked it.
1: So I basically I wrote a script. You know, I, I chopped up the stuff that that Larry Breer, this gentleman, had told me about this basketball game, made a script, and then credit to Justin for I, I literally said, "We'll just make it sound like Radio And so he he inserted the pauses and the crowd noise and the ambient music. Um, and it turned out well, so it, it's fun, you know. I, I'm a, this is my first podcast season, so I'm being a little bit experimental, you know. Like, um, one episode is about an essay I wrote about the Sears catalog, and I, you know, I talked to uh, a writer friend Todd Goldberg about our own experiences with the Sears catalog because we're about the same age. One episode was about the Star Spangled Banner, whereas other other episodes are just straight up interviews with interesting people like Tim Cahill or Tim Ferriss or Ari Shafir. And it's fun. I, I mean, like I haven't had a hyper-professional approach to the podcast because I'm not really sure what I want it to be yet. Um, and I think it would be less fun if I was really aiming for metrics right now, if I was just trying to maximize my audience instead of sort of following my own interests. Uh, and so who knows where it'll be in a year. But but again, it was fun. Like if you have a neighbor who played one-on-five against uh, in basketball 50 three years ago, why not interview them? You know, that's that's the fun thing of being your own boss with a podcast like this. I don't know. <laughs> have you been experimental much in, in your podcast? Yes, or...
0: I have. I have. And I'm yeah. kind of like in the same boat as you is trying to, uh, me and another guy are kind of talking through how this is going to be, you know, what we want it to be. We have actually have a destination podcast as well that goes along with it. So just people that live in these places, interviewing them and talking about, you know, places that aren't in the guidebooks, you know, uh, so we got a destination and then we have, you know, really I've kind of dove into it. I've had interviews with people, um, you know, in and all walks of life, uh, a guy that actually worked on the Island of Nauru. Um, oh,
1: right. Yeah. The bird shit Island.
0: Yes. Yep. <laughs> it is, that was an interesting one. He is a very interesting guy and wrote a couple books and he's kind of uh, leading the charge against kind of the social justice against um, against Australian government uh, because they're sending deporting people to that island and and just, you know, the conditions of the jail there. and and so I'd, I learned a lot about Nauru. I didn't know anything about it really. Um, and then like later on, I saw that Radio Lab had a podcast about it, and so it's kind of interesting to, to listen to that podcast as well. Um, but I, you know, I going back to the basketball po- podcast for you. I'm a basketball coach, so I was like, I loved it. I thought it was great, and I started thinking about it. If he would have rolled the ball, and it would have stopped, and wouldn't have went out of bounds, no one touches it. What what happens there? So I, in my brain, I was like, man, what what's the rule on that? And there is no rule on it. So I don't know how the referees would have handled that if they he rolls the ball and, and the ball stops and no one touches it, you know, the clock can't go. Right. So I, I don't know what would have happened there.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, there's like there's all these years, that there's five decades of hindsight now. But, um, like, in retro- I think he could have been aggressive. Like, as soon as he found out, he could have just, like, tried to throw it off of a player's knee or something. Oh, yeah. <laughs> or, or he could have rolled it and then, then like, rolled it slowly and then been, like, one foot behind the ball, and then when somebody touches it, wrestled the ball. Exactly. Anyway... It's one of those shoulda, woulda, coulda things. I mean, it, it, I think if he would have done something and scored, then it would be an even more famous story than it is. You know, Now <laughs> it's it's sort of this curiosity. But if, if he had beat those five players, then it would have been an even more iconic story. Man, uh,
0: I was hoping yeah. for it. As I was listening to it, I was anxious to hear. <laughs> I was like, this is crazy. I, I loved it. It was great. Um, yeah, that's good. Um, also, I wanted to make sure that I asked you how how those podcasts are with Ari Shafir the, the first one that he did for his show was was it was awesome. It was really great. I was on a run and that's kind of how I've done most. I was actually hoping that your book was an audio book because that's kind of how I, I I listen to books because uh, I like to run a lot so I was listening to your podcast on my run and just loving that podcast. So I was curious of how it was um, be, you know being around him because he's a funny guy
1: yeah no it's uh, so are you talking about his pod when I was on his podcast is that the one yeah Yeah. that was fun and actually it's one of his most popular podcasts for whatever reason um, that has done very well for him which is fun Um, and then one fun thing about talking to Ari um, who I'm going to hang Ari has become a friend we'll we'll probably um, he's going to perform at my book launch party uh, in a week and a half from now uh, but he had just come back from a trip, and so he was so excited in a way that you are, or in a way that is common when you have just had an amazing set of travels, and and so I think you know his energy and excitement sort of sparked my own, and so we talked we, we talked for more than three hours in Tompkins Square Park I think, um, and it ended up being a really fun episode so he's, he's been on the road recently but he'll, he'll be back in new york like he, tomorrow i think so i'll be awesome. i'll be hanging out with him some more and i'm going to try to to sit down with him and do a special souvenir themed episode of deviate where i read a chapter and then he, he and i just sort of sort of uh, spitball about our own experiences with souvenirs because he's such a good well he's a comedian but just sort of a, a, a an easy presence and um we have good chemistry and of course for my podcast we drove around los angeles for a long time and um and just covered some great ground so uh, yeah i'm not surprised that that you responded to that podcast it's it's funny that a a lot of my audience find me through tim ferris uh and now suddenly a a lot of people find me through ari shafir as well so it's a different it's often a male audience um not exclusively so um but it's just a different vibe—the R. R.A. Furfur fans versus the Tim Ferriss fans. So it's been fun to um, to sort of land on the radar of a different a different audience.
0: Yeah, and I I listened to the Tim Ferriss podcast as well, and so that was my next question actually: how how it was, you know, obviously they're two different people, um, but how but was yeah, the, it?
1: They're both very revered people by their fandom, and. Like Tim, Fer- like Tim Ferriss, like Tim Ferris comes up a lot in my conversations. And, and sometimes, um, I'll be talking with people and we'll, we'll be having a normal conversation and they hear, oh my God, you know, Tim Ferriss, or, oh my God, I read your book because of Tim Ferriss. And so there's suddenly <laughs> this fanboy moment I get with people, um, that I wouldn't have, uh, that wouldn't have had otherwise. One thing I, I I've known Tim for a long time, but we haven't hung out a lot. I, I maybe see him once a year. But when he sat down, he was episode one of my podcast. Uh, unfortunately, my my sound levels could have been better. And so a lot of people who tried to listen to that episode in a car can't hear it very well. But uh, I interviewed him about podcasting. We talked for almost three hours about his experience in podcasting. And his genius really is is an ability to sequentially frame things. Like I don't think he prepared – if you listen to my interview with him, it's like he's in a lecture hall. It's like he's laying out the case for a successful podcast, and he obviously works very hard and puts a lot of thought and intelligence into what he does. But I think he just has instincts as a teacher and a framer of ideas, yeah. uh, because because if you go back and if you listen to episode one of the dv with Rolf Potts podcast, it is he aims to do a masterclass with his own podcast, but. He actually made his episode of my podcast, a master class about podcasting um, just off the top of his head. So like ninety nine out of a hundred people would have it would have been very associational and he would have been repeating himself and and um, it wouldn't have been as clear and organized. but there's something there's something um, again, I think it's his genius is this ability to frame ideas and ability to just, to distill complicated things in a very concrete way. Uh, So it's been fun knowing him over the years and and just sort of – it's been fun seeing the different ways he can reinvent himself too Um, because I know he was burned out after his third book, The Four-Hour Chef, and then he parlayed it into into podcasting, which is more financially successful to him than his books, which were quite successful in and of themselves. He actually visited me in Paris a couple summers ago where I teach a writing class, and he participated in some of the writing classes, but he he sort of got – consumed by a book he was working on at the time and then six months later it was it was it was available for christmas it was tools of titans and so oh, wow. um, just his ability to really um to really focus and be productive is not just uh lip service you know that he he is a very uh, uh efficient worker himself he's able to uh, to really knuckle down. Like, I wish I could write a book, or at least assemble a book, The Length of Tools of Titan, in that short of a window. Uh, but he did that, so.
0: Yeah, he's he's meticulous, and he kind of, what he says, he deconstructs. I mean, he's he's good at what he does. Um, and, yeah, I did listen to your interview with him, and I listened to it, one, because I wanted to listen to your podcast, but two, because I wanted to also improve my own and I think that's the, the thing with podcasting is that there's different avenues. And I found that what interests me with, with your podcast and with his and, and some others is that, you know, they, they've no, they're not like a structured TV interview where you have your questions laid out and it's very, you know, formal. Um, I, I'm just not, I, I don't like listening to that. And so I've kind of framed my own podcast that way. And so... I want to thank you guys because you guys kind of inspired me too and I'm learning and trying to improve my podcasting skills.
1: Yeah, that's that's awesome. Um, I think it's a, it attracts a different kind of audience too um, that some people want that very structured, um, what you, you know what you're getting in advance type podcast. Uh, and so it'll be interesting to see in a year who my audience is because I think, uh, and I'm actually curious to know, where your audience lies, where what kind of feedback you're getting. But like, I got a, a, a nice chunk of Tim Ferris fans because he was my first episode and he helped promote my episode. I got a, a big chunk of Ari Shafir fans, but then I think I've, I've alienated both to a certain extent because I'm not, I'm not super Tim-like, and I'm not super Ari-like. You know, I'm, yeah. it's it's my own personality, and I think that was inevitable. You know, that some people they just don't want to. If, if if they're not getting a Tim Ferriss-style masterclass, they feel like it's time wasted. They're not interested in the one-on-five basketball game, and that's fine. Uh, but that's how I'm going to find my audience, and I think, in a in a sense, I think I will learn a lot by finding out what people respond to. So did you have any lessons learned um, this far into your podcasting
0: experience? Yeah, I mean, experience? one is the getting the audio down. <laughs> That's probably the biggest key is making sure because I've got a bunch of different microphones and some of them I like, some of them I don't. Finding the, the correct location, um, you know, that type of deal I've learned a ton about. Um, and, and I think as far as framing my own podcast, I've, I've I've learned that you know I have to be interested in it bef- before it actually takes off. Um, you know, I, I I have a big whiteboard out on my in my garage, and I like to write ideas out there. And when we were when me and my friend were coming up with this idea, we had all sorts of crazy ideas, but really none of them. You know, we were kind of trying to frame the podcast so that we could get people to come and listen to it. Uh, but I found that, Hey, we just need to be who we are, who we what are, what are we interested in, you know, and then kind of trying to frame our podcast so that we can get more. And really it's just an experimentation, kind of like what you've done so far with yours is that you're trying to find your niche and, and I'm trying to find my niche right now. And so I'm just, you know, trying to get out there and, and, and you gotta, you gotta record and you gotta. You can't be afraid to contact people, and if they don't want to, if they don't want to do it, then they don't want to do it. But I've found that if you just ask, you know, you can get you can get interviews with people, as I did with you. So,
1: yeah, no, I, I think maybe there was we had several months of back and forth. Yeah. Um. Uh. So yeah, it happens. No, I'm in the same boat, and actually, Tim Ferriss is in the same boat too. You know, there's some people that Tim really has to hustle for a long time before certain guests will appear on the show so uh yeah, that's part of it. It's actually a lot of work you know there's a lot for every episode that comes out. there's a lot that goes into it um but yeah, actually that's another i uh, you know my my website says um uh, whatever you said before what, what travel writer adventurer teacher, essayist, or something like that. well, now I'm a podcaster too, and it actually takes a lot of time, and I have a lot of fun with it and then you know, I pitched that one on five story to, to This American Life and Sports Illustrated and some other places. But because it's so, it's an interesting story, but it just happened a long time ago, um, that it didn't have any other venue. So I just created my own venue. So I have this outlet for things that I find interesting. And obviously, like you find it, this story interesting too, you know, that maybe the person who really gets into the the Ari Shafir or the Rolf Kent episode isn't necessarily going to be into basketball that much. but for some people they will be into it and so it's interesting it's in a way I think it's good to experiment with one's own creativity to not get too comfortable in one's own pursuits And, and so there's sort of it's exciting that I'm not sure what fruits are going to be born by the podcast yet. I'm just doing things that interest me. I'm making mistakes with audio. Um, I probably need to upgrade some equipment, but that's part of the process, you know, that, that, um, that it's, this, uh, it's this laboratory, it's this idea laboratory, uh, and some things stick and some things don't. So, how many episodes have you done?
0: Um, gosh, that's a good question. I, I haven't really counted my episodes. I should probably go back there and do that. I, I don't label them by, by numbers uh-uh. um, because I do have my destination podcasts. I think I'm around, I want to say around 20 20, different okay. pod, 20, 20 podcasts, I think. And, okay. you know, I this is just by searching and, and thinking about what I'm interested in, maybe Uh, you know events that are happening right now right now I'm trying to get an interview uh, with the guy that wrote a book on the crisis in Venezuela Um, and I'm really interested in Latin American politics I'm really interested in Latin America in general so Uh that really interests me so um, you know I'm trying to figure out that niche and really um, as far as destinations go I think I'm gonna focus really on Latin America right now um i'm getting Uh into drone video and um a lot of uh pictures and photography and and so i'm diving into it (laughs) there's a lot of things that's why i asked you how to balance it all out because i'm like man sometimes i'm getting overwhelmed and i'm like what should i focus on what should i do and um so that's that's where i'm at with the podcast and the website so
1: yeah i say don't be afraid to screw up you know um don't be afraid to i i think what you need to be doing, what works will eventually reveal itself, you know?
0: Yeah, I agree. I agree. And and my last question, and I know that you've heard, I've actually, you know, heard your answer on this, but I know that maybe some of my listeners uh, would want to know, I know the answer to it, but uh, your favorite place to travel to?
1: Yeah, well, that's the most—that's the most common question that you get, you know. <laughs> it's like af- asking a novelist where he or she gets her ideas, you know, or, or um, exactly. Yeah, and, it, and it's such—it's such a hard question to answer, um, you know, because it's like saying what's your favorite child to someone who has kids. <laughs> uh, and so, I mean, there's an extent to which maybe my my favorite place I haven't visited yet. Uh, but there's places that I gravitate back to obviously. And we talked a little bit about this before the interview had formally started. Like I'm a, I'm very fond of Kansas. I like having a home in Kansas. I like sitting on my deck and looking at the Flint Hills in the distance. Um, I'm very fond of Paris. I've been going back there for, this will be my 14th year in a row. Um, I love New York. I'm talking to you from New York right now. Um, and I think almost like souvenirs, your relationship with different countries have different emotional resonance. Like, Asia and Korea, for sure, because I lived there for two years, but also Southeast Asia are very special places to me because it's sort of where I cut my teeth as an international traveler. Uh, And I could spend a lot of time. It sounds like Latin America is sort of that place for you. And I think I could travel my whole life, but I'll always have this special comfort relationship with Korean food that I'll always feel comfortable in a place like Thailand or Laos. Um, And that is as much because of who I was when I first visited those places as um as objectively analyzing those places on, on the on the level of being favored or not favored. And I tell you what, I, I really loved Namibia. I really like Mozambique as well. Uh and so actually I think I'm answering this question in a slightly different way because probably because of writing the souvenir book. I you know I just realized that any that memories and the energy behind them changes over time. And I think the farther I get away from my Korea and Southeast Asian experiences, the more I realize that those are very those are just experiences that are so seminal that they will never not be special to me. You know, like I could go for a decade without going back to those places. I might go to Patagonia or Namibia multiple times, or Paris, obviously, but still those places will be special because they were they were so essential to the traveler I have become. So there's your, there's your original answer, having, having, uh, having heard that question many times, but suddenly answering it in the context of this recent deep dive into souvenirs, it's helped me realize that uh, the, 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 the value and power we attach to memories actually affect how we evaluate things like this.
0: That's awesome. Rolf, I appreciate it. I know you, you got a new book that's out right now, uh, Souvenir. It's great. I've read. I'm gonna dive into it. I'm gonna be off the grid um, this next week, so I'm gonna be. Hopefully, I can finish it. Um, I'm. I should be able to finish it. It's not that long, like you said. It's only a a hundred pages or so. So, um, is there anything else as far as you know? People can reach you on on Twitter. It looks like your handle is just your name, Rolf Potts. Um, Correct. Any other thing? I know that you have Vaga Blogging. Um, That's that's another.
1: Vagablonging is sort of on hiatus, but there's a lot of travel. There's like 12 years of travel information on there, um, but I, I'm not adding to it right now. Um, I uh, email is sort of my venue. It's it's interesting. Uh, people message me on Instagram all the time, and I do respond to them. But uh, if you want to drop me a line, a, a email is probably the best way to contact me. Uh, and then yeah, Rolfpost.com has just it has a ton of information. After all these years, uh, if you want to know more about me, if you want links to all my books. If you want to know how to contact me, then um, that's a great place to start.
0: That's great. Ralph, I appreciate you taking the time. I know you have something to get to, so um, I appreciate it.
1: All right. Well, happy travels, and it should be fun to see how the high school kids do off the grid for a week.
0: Yeah, and and I might might send you an email, too, about – you know, some of the stuff that, you know, pictures and, and I'm actually starting to get kids to start writing more about their, their travel experiences. So I'm starting to post some of those. And, you know, I'm, I'm actually thinking about, uh, gifting every one of my travelers with, uh, vagabonding just cause I think it'd be a good inspiration for them to, to get out and travel.
1: Yeah. That's a good age too, you know, to, to, to sort of at least get those ideas, even if they don't act on them for a while to just let them know that those ideas are out there. So,
0: Hey, thanks for taking the time. I appreciate it.
1: You bet. Uh, Good luck with everything.
0: Yep. Thank you. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in to the Locals podcast. I hope you enjoyed the episode as much as I did. If you go to thelocals.com, I will be posting in the show notes Rolf's website, links to interviews, and other information about how to reach Rolf. If you haven't read Vagabonding, I strongly recommend it. And if you have, Souvenir is a great way to keep your travel juices flowing. For you podcast fans, go to rolfpots.com and start listening to Rolf's podcast, Deviate. I'm going off the radar for a week to Costa Rica, so I'm hoping to reveal some new material soon. So stay tuned by going to thelocals.com. Thanks again.